Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Shifa Abu Zaid, and I am the president of Penn State Law's American Constitution Society, also known as ACS. Um, for those of you that may not be familiar with ACS, um, it is a national network of lawyers, law students, scholars, judges, and policymakers who believe that the law should be a force to improve the lives of all people. ACS works for positive change by shaping debate on vitally important legal and constitutional issues through the development and promotion of high-impact ideas like the panel we will be hosting today. I will be introducing one of our speakers that we are very lucky to have here at Penn State Law tonight. Um, I, it is my pleasure to introduce Professor Kit Roser, um, a Robbins Kaplan Professor of Law at the University of Minnesota Law School. She is a constitutional law expert who focuses on federal government secrecy and separation of powers and free speech. Her book, Reclaiming Accountability, Transparency, Executive Power, and the U.S. Constitution was published in 2015 and was awarded the 2014 IIT Chicago Kent College of Law slash Roy C. Palmer Civil Liberties Prize. Uh, Kitroser's articles have appeared in many venues, including the Supreme Court Review, the Georgetown Law Review, UCLA Law Review, and Minnesota Law Review, as well as a constitutional commentary. In 2017, she was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship to begin work on a book project on U.S. government whistleblowers. Um, please give a round of applause, Professor Kitroser. And I will now hand things off to my classmate, Dallas, to introduce our second speaker, and then we will begin the panel. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Dallas Kepart. I'm the president uh, here of the Penn State Law Federal Society. Uh, the Federal Society is a nonpartisan, conservative, and libertarian organization dedicated to fostering balanced and open debate about the fundamental principles of freedom, federalism, separation of powers, and judicial restraint. The Federal Society seeks to educate the legal community through its programs and publications about how limited constitutional government, based on the rule of law, can have a positive effect on law and public policy. Uh, here at the law school, we do events such as like this tonight, uh, panels. Uh, we also do solo speeches. We bring in various um, academics, legal uh, scholars, and um, uh, different people uh, that's in practice and um but anyhow tonight we have professor keith whittington uh coming and uh, professor keith whittington is the william nelson cromwell professor of politics in the department of politics at princeton university um professor whittington received his bachelor's degree from the university of texas his master's of arts from the yale in political science his phd in political science from yale where he graduated with distinction he is the author of the repugnant, several books, uh, among others is Repugnant Laws, Judicial Review of Acts of Congress from the Founding to the Present, which won the Thomas M. Cooley Book Prize, Constitutional Construction, Divided Powers and Constitutional Meaning, Constitutional Interpretation, Contextual Meaning, Original Intent, and Judicial Review, among others. He has also published widely on American constitutional theory, development, federalism, judicial politics, and the presidency along with numerous articles on impeachment and including a forthcoming article in the uh, Wake Forest Law Review on impeachment that will be published this year. He is also a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So uh, let's give a warm welcome to Mr. Professor Keith Weddington. And, 
And with that, I would like to hand over things to Dina Sosky. Hello, well, I want to join both Shifa and Dallas in welcoming all of you um, here tonight. It's really wonderful to have you here. And we're so delighted to have leading constitutional law experts, Professor Heidi Katroser and Professor Keith Whittington, to dialogue um, with us on a topic that literally I just can't figure out how it could be more timely. Um, we did pick this date in advance. So, um, uh, you know, obviously the, the Senate began proceedings today. The House delivered things to the Senate yesterday. So um, this is clearly a moment, a very important moment to think about impeachment in this country right now. Um, I also want to acknowledge that we're quite obviously um, at a moment of deep polarization in this country. Um, and I think at this time, it's extremely important that universities um, play a key role, which is that of facilitating much needed civil discourse. Um, and so I'm particularly delighted that the Federalist Society and the American Constitution Society collaborated to help us create that today. Um, right, to be able in here to have a thoughtful conversation about the topic of impeachment that goes well beyond kind of the, the sound bites and, and barbs that are going back and forth in our broader society. Um, I want to just take a moment to thank the people at Penn State Law who've made this discourse possible. So, um, as I said, I, I really want to thank the student organizers, um, Shifa Abu Zaid um, of the American Constitution Society and, and Dallas Kephart of the Federalist Society um, for their leadership and collaboration in putting this event together. Let's just take a moment to acknowledge them. I also want to take a moment to acknowledge Professor Ben Johnson, um, you can wave, uh, who's sitting right there. Yeah. Um, so this, this really originated because he, he came to me and said, let's do something on impeachment. And there's this amazing speaker. And then it built into this entirely exciting collaboration between the Federalist Society and, and the American Constitution Society. So I just want to take a moment to really acknowledge Ben's sort of leadership around this event as well. Um, and um, so yeah, let's acknowledge Ben. I'm sorry, Professor Johnson. Um, yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then I also just wanted to take a moment um, to acknowledge um, events like this take a lot of work from a lot of members of the staff team at Penn State Law. And so I really wanted to acknowledge our communications team, our IT team, Russ Schaefer and Randy Fulton, Lisa Rehart, Mary Beth Aber, and our custodial team that all came together to make this event possible. So let's acknowledge them as well. So the format that we're going to use tonight is obviously set up to, to be kind of an, an informal fireside chat kind of a format. Um, what we're going to do is have each speaker make a few opening remarks. Um, I think one of the things that's really wonderful about the combination of speakers we have is that Professor Whittington has a lot of deep expertise in the history of impeachment and um, Professor Katrosher has a lot of deep expertise in whistleblowing, which you know maybe has something to do with the conversation we're having <laughs> about impeachment. Um, so I, I think they'll, they'll pair really nicely. So they're going to make some opening remarks, then I will ask them a few questions, and then we'll spend most of our time in a Q&A with the audience because I really want it to be an interactive dialogue. So um, we'll turn to Professor Whittington first. Great. Um, so I first became interested in impeachment issues when I was a graduate student and beginning work on my dissertation in the early 1990s. 
and I had some particular theoretical reasons why I was interested in it at the time, but I thought it was one of those arcane topics that would never be particularly relevant. Um, and so it's been very weird that I have spent far more time uh, thinking about impeachment and talking about impeachment issues over the course of my uh, professional career than I would have um, expected um, starting out. Um, it's also a little striking how many uh, new issues keep coming up um, on the issue of impeachment and new kinds of questions arising um, that are worth thinking about and often are hard questions. Um, they're worth thinking about very carefully. Um, so I know you're going to have a lot of questions. I want to get to those um, as soon as possible. Um, so I just want to uh, briefly uh, make a, a couple points um, relating to um, how political the process is um, when we think about um, impeachment more generally. And of course, I would say that uh, since I'm a political Zionist, and so I have a stake in emphasizing um, how political uh, these things are. But I think thinking about the politics of impeachment is particularly important. I want to note that in the context of sort of three different um, issues. One is the process. Um, you should expect that the process is going to be highly um, political. It's obviously been highly political so far. I think um, not necessarily a very high politics. I think we should expect more from our politics, from the version um, of the politics we've seen so far. Um, but it's necessarily the case that the people who are going to be uh, heavily engaged in uh, carrying out the impeachment, both on the House side and ultimately on the Senate side, engaging in the trial, are worrying about the future of their political parties. They're worrying about their own individual political fortunes. They're worried about their own constituents and how their constituents are thinking about these things. And that's baked into the impeachment process um, as a whole. Um, and so when you see people suggesting, for example, um, that some of the senators ought to recuse themselves because they um, are too interested, too partisan um, in the process, uh, you should know that the senators are never going to recuse themselves. Um, the senators will not require any of the other senators um, to recuse themselves because they all have uh, political stakes here. They're all partisan. Um, and we should understand the impeachment process um, as being uh, coherent with that uh, rather than somehow um, a part um, from that more generally. Um, secondly, in thinking about how political process is, I think it's also worth thinking about that the purpose um, of impeachments is primarily a political one. Um, so Alan Dershowitz, um, since the very beginning of the Trump administration, has emphasized the idea um, that impeachment should only be used in the context um, of serious criminal offenses, um, things that you might be prosecuted for in an ordinary um, court of law. He is well outside the scholarly mainstream and thinking that that's uh, true about the scope of the impeachment power. It certainly does not characterize how the impeachment power has been used across American history. Uh, for the most part, the impeachment power has not been used um, to deal with ordinary criminal offenses, but primarily political offenses. And moreover, the impeachment power is included in the US Constitution precisely in order to deal uh, with political offenses. The goal of having something in the Constitution that might in particular um, be used to remove a president before his term of office is up um, is the possibility that a president might so severely abuse his power um, that you cannot wait until the next election uh, before you remove that person from office uh, in order to put um, those powers in a more trustworthy um, set of hands. Um, it's obviously going to be a difficult political judgment to know uh, when a particular individual has in fact abused their office such that that uh, kind of remedy is justifiable. Um, but that's the reason why we have an impeachment power in the Constitution in the first place. It's the reason why we should be thinking about using it. Um, and it will require difficult political judgments um, to figure out uh, when to use it. The third brief point I would make about sort of the political uh, nature of the impeachment power is also that we ought to bear in mind, and certainly I think the House needs to be thinking um, currently about what the point is 
um, of impeaching a government official. And the most obvious point, obviously, um, is to try to remove an official. Um, but we now have staring us in the face the fact that the House has impeached somebody um, that the Senate is very unlikely um, to remove at the end of that process, um, which raises real questions about why are we going through this? Um, if we don't think we're gonna get the removal of the officer um, at the end of the process. Um, and I think there are nonetheless some reasons why you would sometimes bring an impeachment forward, um, even if you don't think um, you're going to successfully remove the officer, because impeachments are tools that we've used across American history to do more than simply uh, remove individual officers. We also use the impeachment power to, to emphasize our set of expectations about how officers ought to conduct themselves. We try to create lessons and build norms and enforce norms about proper scope of behavior of government officials in office. And so even if we think, for example, this particular officer, the President of the United States, may retain his office at the end of this process, nonetheless, the impeachment may be quite successful if part of what it does is set a set of expectations about how future presidents ought to conduct themselves, indeed, how this president ought to conduct himself through the rest of his tenure of office uh, in order to exclude certain kinds of behaviors as being beyond the pale not something you ought to engage in, even if it didn't necessarily result um, in the removal of this particular individual uh, from office before um, uh, the natural end of his term. Great. Thank you, Professor Whittington. Professor Catresser? Yes. Uh, thank you. Well, I'm so happy to be here. Um, and thank you to uh, Shifa and Dallas and uh, Professor Johnson and, and Diasovsky. Um, it's terrific to be here. Um, on this uh, quite momentous day, not only because of this event here today. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, as, as Dina Sofsky suggested, I come at this topic a little bit uh, more, uh, uh, more peripherally uh, than Keith does in that uh, I haven't uh, written or researched in depth about impeachment per se, but I uh, do have an expertise in government secrecy and in that context uh, have researched the topic of whistleblowing quite a bit as well as uh, particularly whistleblowing uh, in the intelligence community um, and also certainly the topic of executive privilege so both of these things obviously uh, figure quite importantly into uh, impeachment certainly into this impeachment um, but a, a more fundamental way in which um, I do come to this, uh, in which I come to this area, um, is also that in the course of looking at questions involving uh, executive information control, um, I have studied uh, the idea of executive accountability and presidential accountability in particular and the kind of executive accountability that's contemplated by the Constitution. Um, and obviously that uh, sounds pretty heavily uh, in the context, this is an important sort of uh, part of the uh, context in which we think about impeachment. So with all that in mind, uh, I want to make just three quick points. Uh, so first, um, I want to say a word about the talking point that we've heard quite a lot throughout uh, this process and even leading up to the formal beginning of the process to the effect that impeachment would invalidate an election. Um, this, in my view, this, this simply misunderstands uh, the role of impeachment in the constitutional scheme and even the role of presidential accountability. Um, first of all, as uh, Professor Whittington discussed, uh, impeachment, it's, it's right there in the Constitution, right? The founders were well aware. It's even uh, textually 
acknowledged that impeachment could include impeachment of a president. Obviously, the founders were aware that impeachment is something separate than elections, presumably would occur in between elections. Um, but apart from the simple fact that the Constitution actually provides for impeachment, um, the more fundamental point is that much about the structure of the Constitution, as well as the history underlying Article II, that is the provision that creates the presidency, um, assumes a type of presidential accountability that is pretty robust um, and that goes well beyond elections every four years. So for example, uh, Alexander Hamilton, when extolling the virtues of having a single president as opposed to a council of presidential advisors, said in the Federalist Papers that a single president will be uh, more narrowly watched and readily suspected. Uh, he also referred to the importance of the Senate confirming uh, presidential nominees to executive offices in preventing uh, executive officers from being people uh, who, behind whom the president could hide his misdeeds. Um, and so there are many ways in which structurally and just looking at, uh, you know, sort of the, the founding uh, views about uh, the, the way in which presidents would be kept in check. Um, a lot of ways in which we see that the constitutional scheme contemplates a type of political as well as potentially legal accountability for presidents that goes well beyond a single election opportunity every four years. And of course, in the case, uh, in the modern case, um, since presidents can now serve no more than two terms after the 22nd Amendment, um, many more avenues for accountability than a single re-election opportunity. Um, and so in short, um, you know, I think that the, the uh, talking point that this would invalidate an election and it's somehow fundamentally incompatible with the Constitution uh, really gets short shrift to the very rich and robust notion of accountability embedded in the impeachment uh, provision in the Constitution as well as other aspects uh, of Article II and surrounding provisions. Uh, the second point I want to make is just to say a word about the whistleblowing process that really started, uh, at least in the most immediate sense, uh, started the impeachment process rolling. And I think this process shows us both the importance of whistleblowers in our system and in particular the importance of having avenues uh, for whistleblowing to take place, as well as the vulnerability um, of our system, particularly the system that this particular, that the Ukraine whistleblower uh, invoked and the ease with which the system could kind of collapse or not work in any given case. Um, so in this case, the Ukraine whistleblower uh, acted in accordance with procedures provided by the intelligence community Whistleblower Protection Act. Um, the act's title is a little bit of a misnomer because it, it doesn't really provide generally for protections uh, for whistleblowers throughout the intelligence community, but rather what it does provide is for a discrete set of mechanisms uh, for people who spot, people within the intelligence communities who spot um, what the statute calls a, quote, urgent concern, generally some sort of abuse of power or illegality, et cetera, regarding intelligence activities, provide some avenue for them uh, to convey this information to the congressional intelligence committees. Under the act, uh, the whistleblower or the uh, uh, purported whistleblower is to convey their concerns to uh, the 
in, in their agency or the intelligence community's inspector general. And then the inspector general is tasked under the statute with deciding whether, in fact, uh, the person has raised an urgent concern under the statute. And the statute says that if the IG, the inspector general, spots an urgent concern or agrees there was an urgent concern, then the inspector general, the language of the statute says that they shall then transmit um, uh, or I'm sorry, that, that they then pass the information on to the Director of National Intelligence, but it specifies that the Director of National Intelligence shall transmit the information uh, to the Congressional Intelligence Committees. Um, and in this case, something unusual happened, uh, which is that the Inspector General agreed there was an urgent concern raised, transmitted it to the acting DNI Director of National Intelligence, um, and the DNI, and based on having seen the DNI's testimony, um, I think this was really all done in, in good faith. The DNI, I think, was concerned that, um, you know, perhaps maybe there's privileged material here. I'm not sure that I'm comfortable immediately transmitting it to the intelligence committees. Um, and so he passed the complaint on not directly to the intelligence committees, but to the Justice Department, specifically to the Office of Legal Counsel in the Justice Department. They then wrote an opinion, interestingly, not saying that any of the materials privileged, etc., that there's some constitutional reason it can't go forward, but rather themselves interpreting the intelligence community whistleblower protection act and applying it to the facts and saying, you know, we don't think this does raise an urgent concern because we don't think it directly concerns intelligence activities. So we don't think you should transmit it to the congressional committees. Um, in fact, the inspector general was concerned about this, let the congressional intelligence committees know what was going on. The rest is sort of history. Eventually it leaked out to the press that there was uh, a complaint that hadn't been forwarded to the committees. Um, and you know, eventually the complaint was transmitted, became public, et cetera. Um, we see here, though, the importance of having some sort of avenue. And this is quite a discrete, organized process. This is not a free-for-all process. As you can see, there are a number of discrete steps um, for transmitting information of concern, for doing it in initially sort of closed, secure channels so that it can be done respons uh, responsibly. At the same time, we see lots of potential avenues for failure, right? In this case, um, you know, there were a lot of contingencies, a lot of ways in which the process, uh, in which the complaint ultimately might never have made its way to the intelligence committees. Um, if, for example, uh, the inspector general hadn't decided to let the intelligence committees know that it was held up in OLC. Um, if we had uh, a, a Republican control of the House, right, and that they hadn't made a lot of noise about this information being transmitted to them. Also, remember the fact that there was just a single whistleblower, right, at least initially. Um, after, of course, this complaint came to light, we've had a lot of testimony from a lot of people expressing a lot of concerns, um, but it does pose an interesting counterfactual, right? What if this one person hadn't spoken out? So we see how vulnerable the system is. Last thing I'll say, and I'll just spend you know a minute on this so we can get to, to questions and we could always talk more about this in Q&A, just wanted to say a word about the way executive privilege uh, factors into this whole process. Um, and the part I'll focus on uh, here is just to uh, refer to Congress, to the House's second article of impeachment, um, which is for obstruction of Congress. And essentially, the argument in this article 
is uh, that the president is essentially refusing to cooperate or refuse to cooperate uh, with the House investigations. And what's interesting about the article is that it rests not really on a particular refusal, a particular, particular response to a subpoena, for example, um, but rather the argument is, look, the president is essentially taking a blanket position that this entire thing is invalid and therefore we're not gonna cooperate as a matter of principle. Um, so that's the basis on which the article uh, uh, rests. Um, and I think, you know, my own view is, I, I think this is actually quite a sound basis. Um, there absolutely is under the case law precedent, regardless of what you think of the case law, the reality is under the case law, the president absolutely does have a basis to make claims of executive privilege. At the same time, the case law is quite clear that broad blanket claims not based on specific concerns about specific items of information, etc., um, are unlikely to prevail. Certainly true for broad claims of testimonial immunity from given individuals even having to show up in the first place. Um, so my own view is that uh, uh, this second article, even though you know I think it's somewhat controversial, uh, is pretty well founded. But obviously executive privilege also factors in in other ways, including questions of what will happen if the Senate does call for witnesses and they simply refuse to appear, et cetera. Um, but I'll leave it at that and look forward to the conversation. Terrific. Well, one of the things that, that is interesting, if you think about the confluence of your two remarks, right, so you're talking about the, the politics of the process and you're talking about the, the process of information coming through. And of course, one thing that's been very complicated in this impeachment process is the interaction between politics and information. Um, and even since um, the House vote, there's been new information coming out. Um, and so I'd be interested in hearing both of your perspective on sort of the appropriate way for this kind of process to deal with a situation where there's unfolding information. Um, this is obviously not unique to this situation um, where you know, you're, you're learning more as the process is going on. Um, well, I'll just take a start it out. Um, it's, it is really fascinating, right, to see this all playing out in real time. And, and as the Dean says, it's not unusual uh, in theory, but as the degree of it. I think is sort of unusual. I mean, it's just like an avalanche of stuff constantly coming out, including on Monday night before the impeachment articles uh, were formally transmitted to the Senate. Um, as so, I just I, just a couple thoughts. So one kind of practical and one more theoretical. So the practical thought is that this presents both opportunities and great challenges, right, in terms of moving proceedings forward. Uh, opportunities, just taking uh, uh, the perspective of the Democrats, right? Um, if you're a Democrat, if you're one of the House managers, uh, or one of the impeachment managers uh, in the Senate trial, uh, politically, uh, you know, talking about the intersection between politics and information here, politically it presents some opportunities, right, maybe opens up uh, avenues for further public pressure on moderate Republican senators, right, to say, oh my God, you know, look, there's all this new stuff, Lev Parnas talked to Rachel Maddow, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, all of these new documents uh, uh, were released by the House Intelligence Committee Monday night. Um, surely, surely, uh, the Senate at least wants to look at this stuff, right? So it sort of opens up avenues for public pressure. Obviously, though, uh, you know, creates more challenges, right? What do you do when uh, the executive simply refuses 
uh, to cooperate. The House took the view that it would take too long if we uh, uh, contested the subpoenas, took it to the courts, uh, waited for resolution. Um, and so they proceeded essentially without, uh, uh, you know, calling witnesses who refused to comply with testimony. Um, so how will that proceed presents new challenges. As, as a theoretical matter, um, I'll just make the observation that it's really fascinating to think about the way information cascades are working here, right? So I mentioned the whistleblower. That was an example of one person making this complaint, could have easily never been made, or maybe could have been bottled up, right, after um, uh, OLC stepped in and rendered their opinion. Once it came out, though, you know, it was sort of like opening Pandora's box. I mean, that then led to other people, uh, other documents coming out, ultimately led to the impeachment proceedings, led to witnesses, uh, uh, et cetera. And so it'll be interesting to see, I suspect, we'll have similar dynamics here where some information comes out, maybe that does cause pressure that leads to more discovery, more, possibly more pressure for witnesses, may lead to more disclosures, may lead to more leaks to the press, et cetera. So it's a very dynamic cycle. Yeah, I think the, the uh, second article of impeachment is an important aspect of this issue about the additional information coming forward. I mean, one, one reason why, of course, additional information is coming forward is this is a complicated um, event. Um, it occurred mostly in secret. You would expect that the investigation might take quite some time, including that information is going to trickle out um, to some degree, um, which poses challenges for the House and thinking about whether or not to pursue impeachment um, at all, given how late in the term uh, the scandal itself broke and then how much time do you actually have uh, to conduct a thorough investigation. I think it's perfectly reasonable for the House to make the calculation that there's information we don't know yet, um, but we know enough. Um, to be able to move forward on the substantive charge um, contained in Article 1. At the same time, Article 2 emphasizes the fact that the executive branch, by being so non-cooperative, um, is guaranteeing that information is not going to be readily available to assess um, uh, the first component. Um, the administration is the one that's responsible in part uh, for the fact that information will continue to trickle out um, gradually over time. And it's not unreasonable, I think, for the House then to say um, that it's um, the administration's fault um, that um, this process um, is uh, giving rise to this awkward situation in which you're having more um, information coming out. I think, again, on the political front, um, it raises interesting questions, I think, in particular now uh, for Republican senators um, who um, all along have been, um, it's also true for Republicans in the House, but I think Republican senators in particular um, are, have been in this awkward situation um, that all along they are expected to defend the president. Um, they're expected by their own constituents and voters um, to defend uh, the Republican president um, in this context, but they don't know what the story is. They don't know exactly what it is they're defending. Um, and so as a consequence, and the administration's own um, argument about what happened um, and what the rationale and justification for what happened um, has changed over time. Um, and so I think Republican politicians find themselves in this awkward situation where they're sometimes having to offer um, public defenses um, that they will soon have to walk back. Um, because new information will become available that will suggest, well, that defense isn't going to hold up. We have to move um, to some uh, other uh, defense in the future. I think now Republican senators are going to have to be in a situation where they're going to have to think about the fact um, that new information will continue to come to light, including information that's come to come to light after the trial is done um, and after they've cast their votes on whether or not to acquit and convict. And almost certainly all the additional information that's going to come to light is going to look bad for the president. 
Um, and so to what degree do you want to be a senator voting to acquit uh, when you know that there will be additional shoes that are going to be dropping um, after you've cast that vote um, that will make your vote um, look increasingly bad um, over time? It may still be justifiable to vote to acquit under those circumstances, but they need to think carefully about what kinds of arguments they're going to construct uh, knowing that there's going to be more information that's going to come out down the road. Actually, if I could just add one thing, it reminded me as you were speaking that, uh, you know, just another thing that came out just today, and because I was being driven around to places like the creamery, I wasn't able to look at it in depth, but I did take a quick glance and saw, the creamery is great, by the way, um, I just took a quick glance and at the news and saw that the uh, uh, government accountability uh, uh, office yep. um, uh, today released a report concluding, a nine-page report uh, concluding that um, uh, that the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, which sort of technically was the uh, uh, office in the executive branch that sort of technically held up the funds that had been appropriated by Congress uh, for Ukraine, uh, that they acted in violation of their legal directive. Uh, but the part that's, and so obviously that's yet another revelation, but the part that struck me the most about it, uh, just from skimming through it without having had a chance to read the whole thing yet, um, is the fact that toward the end of the report, uh, the GAO, uh, you know, essentially in, in, for the GAO, pretty inflammatory language said something to the effect that, you know, the administration did not cooperate in turning over information. We still haven't been able to fully do our job um, in the way that the law demands. Uh, because uh, this information has not been turned over. And they said something that they even had some very strong paragraph or sentence that said something to the effect of, um, you know, the failure to turn over the information has constitutional implications. Um, so that adds yet, you know, yet a little more gloss to all of this. So one of the things that's very clear in that the answers you're giving, and, and, and I particularly noted when you said the House, the, the Senate Republicans, well, the House ones too, but especially the Senate Republicans, right, is that one key aspect of the dynamics that are going on in, in, this, in, in, in these impeachment proceedings is that Article I of the U.S. Constitution divides the process between the House and the Senate. Um, and so, you know, in a situation like we have right now, where the House and the Senate have different partisan compositions, um, right, that is, that is real implications. And so I'd be interested in your reflections um, of what you see as the key benefits and limitations of the division of power within Congress in both this historical context that you've studied a lot and, and also the, the current one that we're looking at today as well. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think there's, um, uh, one feature of the impeachment power, of course, is that it is hard to remove somebody like a president, right? It requires a lot of um, uh, support within Congress and really within the general public um, in order to remove a president as a whole. And this two-stage process um, by which you need bicameral support ultimately to remove presidents, part of that. Um, ultimately, in order to uh, convict, you need supermajority support um, within the Senate, which makes it um, even uh, more uh, difficult. Um, the founders, I don't think, um, uh, clearly did not anticipate um, the, the ways in which uh, political parties would grow up and the consequences that would have uh, for how a process like this would work, as well as other uh, features of our constitutional system uh, more generally. Um, and that creates real problems. Um, uh, so, for example, um, uh, there were occasions during Andrew Jackson's presidency in which the Whigs very much 
um, thought that um, Andrew Jackson um, ought to be uh, impeached and indeed uh, removed from office. Um, and their problem uh, from their perspective was they did not have a majority in the House of Representatives, so they couldn't even launch um, an impeachment process because the Democrats um, controlled a majority in the House and Andrew Jackson um, could rest secure in the fact um, that he knew uh, that he would not be impeached. And as a consequence, Jackson would uh, frequently issue messages saying, well, if you really don't like it, impeach me. Um, and of course, uh, knowing that uh, his party controlled the majority in the House and they would never um, impeach him um, in, in those consequences, which made the Whigs who were in the Senate, who actually had a majority in the Senate, very unhappy because they were anxious to get impeachment articles um, in the Senate. And one feature of this process is the Senate can't launch its own impeachment process, right? It needs the House um, to launch that impeachment process um, in, in the first place. So it's very hard um, to move this um, process um, forward. It's designed. Um, to be hard, um, but with uh, the nature of political parties, um, it certainly complicates it um, in, some time, in some ways makes it easier. Uh, the Democrats are particularly enthusiastic about um, impeaching uh, the current president, um, but in some ways also makes it hard. Republicans are particularly dug in um, in protecting uh, this particular president. Yeah, I would largely echo that. Um, you know, I suppose all I would add, uh, mainly just an elaboration on that point, is that it is striking um, to think about the, the sort of divergence between uh, the theory behind, you know, why it is. I mean, obviously, like with all things in, in you know, the constitutional text and, and history, there isn't one monolithic theory or, or rationale for particular provisions, but to the extent you can sort of glean from the text itself and from the history a theory as to why uh, we divide the power in the way that we do between the House and the Senate, um, the divergence between that theory and the practice largely because of, of the gloss that parties add to it, it really is striking, right? You know, I think the theory is partly, as Keith said, simply to make it, diff simply make it hard, right, in the way that um, uh, bicameralism uh, makes even passing legislation hard. Obviously, this is an even weightier task. Um, also, you know, in the way that it, I think, does envision somewhat distinct roles for the House and the Senate, um, it being a little bit easier to impeach sort of the equivalent of indicting um, uh, and, you know, kind of perceiving more of kind of a roving investigative process in the House, as opposed to perhaps the more measured uh, uh, trial, perhaps somewhat more legalistic, uh, com contemplated uh, trial in the Senate, uh, the harder threshold to get a conviction. Um, but compare that sort of theoretical divide and the theory of the respective roles with the reality, which is just so inextricable from the existence of parties, right? So if we look at the current impeachment proceedings, um, it's not clear that there's you know, a marked difference in uh, the contemplated procedures in the House and the Senate so much as there is a stark difference simply based on party alignment, right? A stark and very predictable difference so that the main difference between the House and the Senate in this case being, you know, one is Democratic, one is Republican. Um, it is great to get the historical perspective from Keith, right? Uh, recognizing that this is not a new phenomenon. Um, at the same time, um, you know, I think arguably it's become an even more intractable phenomenon. I keep thinking about this Law Review article from 2006 uh, by Daryl Levinson and, and Richard Pildes called um, Separation of Parties, Not Powers, uh, where they talked about how the Madisonian model separated powers uh, uh, was based on this idea that 
Congress people would be loyal to their institution and protect the sanctity of their institution. Same thing for executive branch officers, same thing for judicial officers. Instead, what's happened is that everyone's clinging to party-based loyalty, and that really does you know, cause sort of a breakdown in the separation of powers. The one qualification I think that's worth noting in the impeachment context is the vast majority of our impeachments at the federal level have involved lower court judges. Um, and these are not primarily partisan affairs. And so um, uh, the, the kind of expectation about how the impeachment process uh, works um, does play out much more naturally um, in the context of uh, some trial court judge um, being accused of corruption who won't resign uh, from office and as a consequence you go through the impeachment process. Presidential impeachments in that sense um, are different um, than uh, normal impeachments and as a consequence I think put a uh, much greater pressure um, on the way the constitutional system works, emphasizes this partisan aspect of how the process works um, in ways that's gonna be less true in, in other kinds of contexts. So these answers and, and, and the comments you've been making um, throughout really lead to, to, to my next question, which is about um, procedure, right? So clearly, as both of you have alluded, a, a key dispute point is what process is going to be followed um, in, in the Senate trial. Um, and particularly, you know, the dispute is particularly focused around how witnesses are going to be handled. Um, and so I was, I was really interested in hearing your perspectives, both um, sort of from historically, from, from past um, impeachment trials, not just of presidents, but of public officials, how, 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 do we tip, how are witnesses typically used? And also, kind of based on your analysis of, of kind of how, um, you know, whistleblower processes um, emerge into broader information processes, what does that imply for, for, for how um, witnesses should or shouldn't be used in, in this context? Um. So, so it's notable, right, that the, the way the impeachment process is structured, it uh, Constitution refers to a trial in the Senate. Um, there's an expectation, and there's something that's going to be trial-like um, uh, in the Senate. Um, but, it's not, but the Constitution is not very specific about what that trial-like um, uh, practice is going to look like, um, and it's varied a lot. Um, over the course of American history as to what exactly uh, Senate impeachment trials look like. And some of that variation um, is a function of the uh, particular kinds of charges uh, being brought and the particular um, context in which they're being brought. Um, some of it's just changes in the nature of Senate practices um, over time, um, especially given some of the current um, talking points um, uh, that have come up recently. Uh, it certainly is worth emphasizing that historically when the Senate holds impeachment trials, um, it tends to hear actual witnesses um, and take um, testimony. It tends not to simply rely on what the House itself um, had done as part of the House impeachment inquiry. Uh, the Senate will talk to witnesses and collect evidence um, and enter, in, uh, enter um, into the record evidence um, that was not part um, of what the House had done um, in its initial uh, inquiry. There's an expectation um, that there will be two sides battling it out um, in front of the Senate and they will both be bringing forward um, the evidence that they think is going to be helpful um, for their uh, particular um, side. Um, at the same time, it is also true, and especially in the context of a, a presidential impeachment, um, that uh, the Senate as a whole, senators and the senators of the two parties, um, are also trying to think about um, what the political implications of this process are going to be. Um, they thought about that when they were impeaching uh, President Andrew Johnson. They thought about that when they were impeaching uh, President Bill Clinton. Um, they're trying to think about um, how is this going to play with the public. 
um, how is this going to have consequences for the future of the political party um, in the next uh, presidential election. Um, and so as a consequence, they're thinking about uh, how to cabin uh, that process um, so that it um, isn't detrimental to their interests as they perceive them um, uh, going forward, as well as thinking about uh, what are the immediate consequences for this particular um, incumbent um, who's being put on trial at this particular moment. Yeah, um, so just a, a few things. One is that um, it's so interesting to think about the way we talk about precedence um, when we talk about impeachment, and this gets back to Keith's uh, foundational point that this is an intrinsically political process, right? So normally, when I talk to law students about precedence, right, more often than not, we're talking about judicial precedence. This is an area where we draw overwhelmingly on uh, precedents in past impeachment proceedings, right, in the political branches. And certainly when it comes to presidential impeachments, we have such, you know, just a, a shallow uh, uh, set of examples, a small set of examples to draw on. But this is an area where I think it is really, really useful, um, in part for trying, to the extent we possibly can today, to get past um, the purely partisan calculations to actually point to past precedents in order to point, for example, to, you know, as Keith was saying, the, the just routine nature um, of calling upon witnesses, of discovering new evidence um, in the Senate trial uh, uh, part of impeachment proceedings. Um, so it's at minimum a very useful uh, starting point. Um, ideally, in terms of moving forward with procedures um, and trying to sort of break out of the logjam of each side thinking only about sort of immediate partisan interests, um, you know, ideally, in an ideal world, one would want to try to uh, find some sort of bipartisan agreement on procedures. Now, you know, people often point to the example of the Clinton impeachment, where uh, the Senate actually did, the minority and majority leader actually did manage to broker, uh, you know, a widely accepted uh, agreement as to the procedures that they would follow. I don't think we're going to get to that point here, but I think instead, sort of the closest that we can come here is, uh, you know, the bringing in of perhaps a few wavering Republican senators who everyone seems to be looking to, to see if we can get some agreement uh, uh, from them that, you know, they would be on board uh, with becoming part of a majority to agree to procedures whereby we have witnesses, etc. Um, also, on the point that Dina Sofsky raised about, um, you know, bringing in new information and how that can uh, sort of relate to, uh, you know, the process of witnesses. Um, you know, it is, it is very tricky because like in any trial, information gathering, uh, dis uh, discovery, information disclosure, of course it's very important. At the same time, there are rules of evidence in ordinary criminal trials uh, to ensure perhaps more than anything else that the information be relevant, right? And so that comes into play when we start getting into arguments, for example, about, uh, you know, some of, uh, I think Mitch McConnell and some others have said, well, if you want witnesses, then let's call Hunter Biden, uh, uh, let's call Joe Biden, et cetera. And that's where I think we may get into some sticky uh, questions into which Chief Justice Roberts uh, may find himself uh, getting, you know, called upon perhaps to, to uh, 
rule on relevance. Um, of course, a majority of senators could overrule relevance determinations uh, uh, by the Chief Justice. But I think that may be an area where, the, if, if they do end up agreeing, if, we get, if they get a majority to agree to hear witnesses or to receive new evidence, um, that could be where the rubber really meets the road in terms of difficult questions of how will this actually play out in practice. Although it's worth noting that the Senate's own precedents hold that the federal rules of evidence don't apply in Senate impeachment trials. Right. Um, so it's, it's a unique body of rules about uh, what rules of evidence apply and it doesn't look like an ordinary um, court in yeah. that sense. And so it becomes a very open question as to whether or not are you, how wide are you willing to cast the net in, in allowing these things to proceed? Yeah, no, that's yeah. absolutely right. And just to clarify, you know, that's obviously that's not to suggest that the federal rule of evidence itself would apply, but presumably, you know, the, the question would be, you know, brought to the chief justice and raised to fellow senators, as you say, you know, in this context, given that we have so much leeway to craft, craft and apply procedures for ourselves, um, how narrowly or broadly do we do, do we want to define what's relevant? How will we make these decisions, et cetera? So um, one last question before we open it up, because I really do want to leave a lot of time for audience participation. Um, as has been clear in all of the answers you've been given, and, and particularly the, 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 this final interchange, um, part of what makes the current process so complex is the deep level of polarization in this country. Um, are there any strategies, whether historical or other ones, um, that you think would be most helpful in decreasing partisanship and establishing a good process? <laughs> uh, I am not optimistic about uh, decreasing partisanship or establishing a good process. Um, uh, I think the process has been a mess so far. Um, I was very disappointed about how the House um, has pursued um, uh, the impeachment process um, on the whole. Um, I don't think it's very well handled, um, either from a purely constitutional perspective or from a political perspective in terms of trying to build uh, support for the um, enterprise more generally. I have no real expectation that the Senate trial is going to be very pretty. Um, I expect it will also be a clown show. Um, and, um, and as a consequence, um, I think we will wind up uh, coming out of that process uh, very dissatisfied uh, with what it looks like um, at the end of the day. Um, uh, and, and certainly I think the impeachment itself um, and the impeachment process is not going to be the moment um, in which we're going to overcome partisanship. I mean, I think there is a, a challenge moving forward about how to think about um, uh, overcoming partisanship in various ways um, in our political system generally and in Congress uh, more specifically, um, but a presidential impeachment is probably not the opportune time uh, by which we're going to uh, come to that particular miraculous uh, conclusion. Yeah, I am similarly somewhat uh, uh, not terribly sanguine about uh, this being a moment uh, where we'll triumph over partisanship. Um, I think in terms of kind of immediate immediate sort of procedural approaches uh, uh, by members of the Senate themselves to try to overcome it, um, I think probably uh, what I suggested earlier in terms of trying to refer back to earlier procedures, trying to sort of transcend uh, just the facts of the moment in appealing to other senators and appealing to the public, uh, you know, might be a starting point. Um, I think ultimately, as I said before, the best hope of bipartisanship is not some sort of broad uh, crossing of the aisle, but perhaps bipartisanship, uh, you know, in the sense of, of some agreement uh, between the Democrats and a handful of potentially wavering senators. 
Um, I also think you know we can't get away from in terms of how difficult it is right now to transcend partisanship. Uh, we can't get away from the media environment. I mean, more so even then in the Clinton impeachment and certainly uh, uh, in earlier presidential impeachments, um, and certainly more so than in Clinton, um, we we have a media environment right now where you know different partisan compositions, different pieces of the country that have sort of aligned themselves based on partisan affiliation have essentially different, very different factual starting points, right? People are getting very different understandings, um, oftentimes depending on what media they watch, they listen to. And so that's you know, just I think another challenge um, in terms of reaching any sort of shared agreement, at least as to basic facts, um, as well as to uh, you know what the the various motivations of uh, the parties are. Yeah, absolutely. Part of my uh, preparation for this evening was to watch the coverage on both MSNBC and Fox News. And let's just say they weren't identical. <laughs> um, on that um, happy note, um, I, I want to open it up to audience participation. Because this is being live streamed and we want people listening to be able to hear, um, and people in the auditorium to be able to hear, I'm going to ask people who have questions to come forward to the two microphones in the aisles. Um, and I also just want to encourage, in the spirit of civil discourse, that, that people focus on, and, and to allow maximum participation, that people focus on questions rather than lengthy statements. My question is... And can you identify yourself? Oh, yeah. Uh, my name is Joe Malizia. I'm a local attorney. I went here, graduated in 2011 from this law school. Am I, am I being recorded? Good. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my question is whether uh, impeachment, whether is it inherently political in versus criminal, uh, that dichotomy, is that in fact, uh, from especially from a historical perspective, a false dichotomy? And what I mean by that is in the criminal context, I know you don't want to like this statement, but in the but just to clarify what I what I mean here, in our modern day legal positivism mindset we think of crimes in terms of exactly that specific elements but back in the day it was when the founders in 1787 made the constitution that was not the legal philosophy that predominated the day it was theories of natural law uh, additionally just to anchor what i mean here for someone who doesn't have like a political philosophy background george washington once uh, court-martialed individual for a violation of their oath I believe is an oath of enlistment, something that sounds just wild and crazy. So back to the original question, is a criminal versus political, when we hear political, we think elections, criminal, we think that legal positivism, is that really even a, a is that a false dichotomy? And is that something that does not translate to a 21st century audience? Um, so, so I think it's an interesting question, right? I mean, there are reasonable analogies to be drawn between the impeachment process and a criminal process. Um, I just don't think we want to um, get carried away with thinking about how well the analogies apply in, in these contexts. So for example, um, uh, there is an expectation that 
um, the House brings forward articles of impeachment that are sufficiently specific and clear um, that it's possible to for a defense to make an argument about whether or not that you've met them, right? And then and it they frequently get referred to in that context as being similar to a bill of indictment, and that they need to have the right kinds of particulars such that you can actually gain some leverage um, in them in a trial. Um, and it's a mistake if the House can't. Um, um, uh, structure their charges in a way um, that uh, creates an opportunity for the defense um, to make arguments against them. On the other hand, there are other uh, places where um, the analogy um, becomes more uh, difficult. So for example, um, in the uh, Andrew Johnson impeachment, uh, one of his uh, members of his defense team um, uh, wanted to argue in particular um, that it was inappropriate to charge the president with these particular offenses um, because uh, it was not clear they were in fact offenses um, going into the process. It, it effectively, um, the House was creating ex post facto laws and, and retrospectively applying a, a new standard um, as to what um, uh, uh, presidents could be held to account for um, that Johnson would not have had an adequate prior warning um, uh, going into uh, the process. Al Dershowitz has echoed um, some of these kinds of arguments uh, more, more recently, uh, for example. Um, and the House rejected that argument. Most of the senators rejected that argument, um, ultimately, um, in part um, claiming um, that that's perfectly reasonable in the context of a criminal trial uh, where somebody's uh, life or liberty um, is on the line, uh, not so appropriate in the context of impeachment, uh, where the only thing at stake is whether or not you continue to hold office, um, and as a consequence, we want relatively flexible standards um, in thinking about abuse of powers um, that uh, uh, may be more flexible, more fluid, and may not be clearly um, defined until we actually have the occasion uh, to be thinking about in that kind of specific um, context. Um, so I think there are places where these two things tend to come together um, uh, fairly well, um, but there are also places where they really clearly um, tease apart and our expectations become pretty different about how, and historically at least, I mean, uh, and like I said, of course, there are, there are people inside any of an impeachment event who want to um, sometimes uh, push them further apart and others have an incentive um, to pull them closer together. Um, uh, but I think traditionally, um, there are just some uh, uh, important distinctions uh, between how the impeachment process is tended to work and how we uh, think it ought to work um, and how we expect a criminal process to work. Yeah, I, I would just echo uh, uh, the point that, yeah, it's, it's, it is a useful analogy to a point, right? It can be sort of counterproductive if taken too far. Um, you know, a good example of the latter is, I think, that the tendency uh, and to keep uh, associated this with Alan Dershowitz, for example, um, though others have said it too. Uh, you know, a good example is the fixation, which I think is a pretty anachronistic one, among other things, um, uh, by some of the president's defenders on the idea that, you know, there has to be a crime um, which is just incompatible, you know, with, with the historical understanding or the historical practice um, or even the logic, right, of what impeachment is about. Um, on the other hand, it is useful. You know, I mentioned the idea, for example, of arguments about what evidence should come in. Um, you know, it's sort of useful, although obviously we're not bound by the federal rules of evidence here. It is sort of useful, perhaps, to uh, hearken uh, in deciding what should come in, what, what shouldn't come in. Uh, to the idea of relevance, also sort of useful to, you know, draw an analogy to the indictment process and then the trial process, et cetera. Um, one other thought that this calls to mind is, um, not just the dichotomy or the relationship between politics and criminal law, 
but the relationship more broadly in these proceedings between politics and law more generally, um, because while I think, I was thinking about this when, when Keith was first talking about impeachment as a political process, one of the things that's interesting about it um, is that it is, in all the ways that he suggested, I think it absolutely is a political process, um, uh, and, and particularly in that it's one that is essentially resolved and ultimately uh, uh, you know, the decisions made um, are up to the two houses of Congress, uh, so you know, these, these politi this political branch. Um, but it's this interesting interplay of politics and constitutional law in that part of what's being played out and argued about on the part of each house is what is the meaning of these constitutional terms, you know, most notably what is a high crime or misdemeanor. Um, and I think that we see that interplay whenever uh, we see a case where, you know, a, a branch is given constitutional responsibility to do something in a way that doesn't really lend itself to judicial review. Um, and so the process is necessarily political in that, you know, the political branch gets the final decision, and yet there is an element of constitutional argument being made both within members of the branch to one another, as well as back and forth to the public, right, in arguing again, in this example, what is a high crime or misdemeanor. Thank you. So I think you were next. Hi, uh, my name is Sarah. I'm a current law student here. Um, my question goes to the legality of the amount of time that Nancy Pelosi withheld the articles of impeachment um, for the Senate before she transferred them to the Senate. And um, has that historically done before? And what kind of precedent does that, I guess, establish for? possibly future impeachment hearings? Um, so it's not unprecedented. Um, uh, and I don't think it will have big consequences for future um, impeachments. Um, um, I'm not a big fan of how this was done, although, but it's worth noting um, that given the timing of when the initial articles were um, voted on in the House, it was probably always going to be the case that they were not going to be delivered to the Senate until after the holidays. Um, and so the thing I don't like very much about this is that uh, Pelosi made a big show of the fact that she was not going to, and, and then uh, teased us about how long she was willing to wait. Um, I think the actual gap that has in fact occurred is probably the exact gap we would have expected um, if, no, if there had been no public conversation about holding them um, uh, particularly. But it's worth noting that um, uh, this process has also varied over time um, as to what it looks like. Some of it is actually a variation um, that uh, has created patterns over time, but some of it's sort of idiosyncratic uh, in particular instances. Um, so for example, there have been impeachments in the past uh, in which the House um, has simply announced um, and, and resolved um, that an official is impeached. Um, they then go to the Senate um, and tell them, uh, we have impeached so-and-so for high crimes and misdemeanors. We will send you articles later when we figure it out. Um, and then they go back and they, and they debate about it, sometimes for months um, before they figure out what the actual articles of impeachment are, and then they bring them forward. So everyone knew that you needed actual articles before you could have a trial because you needed a specific accusation that somebody could defend themselves against. Um, in order to actually have the trial and decide whether or not to convict. Um, but the decision that you think somebody, that you want to lodge the accusation could occur pretty quickly and easily, and the House in the past has been willing to make that accusation before they ever have any sense about what exactly the articles are gonna wind up looking like. 
Um, and the very earliest um, um, impeachment episodes um, had very extended gaps um, between when the House initially notified the Senate, we hereby impeach somebody, and when they actually showed up with article of impeachment and said, okay, now we're ready for a trial um, to go forward. Um, and so uh, there's, I, I think from a broad historical perspective, then there's nothing either uh, wrong or unusual uh, about the House uh, being uh, slow about this, and I don't think this will have consequences going um, uh, forward. Um, but it did give rise to this very interesting question about when exactly somebody's impeached, um, uh, which um, uh, I've participated some in this, in this debate, and, I, and, um, uh, and it turns out it actually is a little complicated um, as, to, as to know uh, when is the moment exactly uh, when, when somebody's actually uh, been impeached, and, and I think actually the answer is not entirely clear. Uh, but probably we have a different answer that we conventionally come to now um, than when the early generations uh, actually would have understood that moment to have occurred. Um, so, I, you know, for what it's worth, I, I was not uh, particularly troubled uh, by the delay to the extent there really was a delay because your point is, Keith's point is well taken about the holidays, but certainly Nancy Pelosi, you know, sort of framed it as a delay. Um, I wasn't troubled by this um, in part because I think this is sort of a perfect example of uh, the appropriate use of uh, sort of politics to in the sense here of both public appeals and appeals to Mitch McConnell and others in the Senate um, uh, in terms of mostly what the process would look like. Um, so to the extent that you know, Mitch McConnell had made public statements about uh, you know, his position being clear and working in tandem with the White House, um, I think it was an appropriate and, and probably fairly savvy move to do this, not necessarily to gain anything tangible, but to highlight for the public, um, you know, to kind of take a pause and do a freeze frame and sort of highlight for the public, look, we're concerned about the process that's going to take place in the Senate. We think it's important that there be witnesses. We think it's important that the process be as impartial as possible. Um, that, you know, Pelosi certainly didn't have a whole lot of cards to play at that point. You know, it's largely in the Senate's hands at this point. But I think doing a little freeze frame and announcing that that was her reason for the freeze frame um, might have been the most effective way she could to sort of shine a spotlight on these procedural concerns and bring public attention to it and possibly also put some more pressure on moderate, potentially wavering senators on that score. Um, she might have also been gambling that more information was going to come out, in part because the House Intelligence Committee themselves released more information on Monday night. That might have been part of her thinking. But I think even apart from that, it was, it was I think, a reasonable approach. Professors, thank you guys for both coming out, um, and I appreciate your time. Uh, I'm Eric Greiner. I'm a 3L here. Um, and I guess my question really has to do with, we talked a lot about horizontal separation of powers, parties, um, politics, and playing in, in, you know, in kind of the administration. My question is, you know, obviously with the changing of the 17th Amendment um, and the Senate, we're direct, they're directly answerable, almost as the House is, to, you know, as the House is to the people. Um, versus, you know, I know, Professor, you mentioned that the Senate's supposed to be more deliberative, more time-based, um, and a lot of the Federalist Papers say, you know, they're supposed to be more representing the interests of the state. So, um, you know, in the context of the Trump administration specifically, immigration and things of that nature, and all the changes in re the regulatory uh, regimes, I guess the question I have is, where do states' interests lie in, the, in impeachment, you know, go, in this case and in going forward as far as how are they supposed to be represented 
um, in these issues. I think there's kind of a glaring vertical uh, federalist gap here that has kind of obliterated a lot of Madisonian structure here. Um, I wonder if you could speak to yeah. that. That is a really interesting question. Um, so I guess my off-the-cuff thought is that usually it would depend, obviously, on the specific you know, issues uh, at stake in a given impeachment, the specific articles and facts. Um, I would usually tend to think of impeachment as something that would tr involve issues that would probably transcend issues that, that break down in obvious ways, at least along state lines, um, that you know obviously have differences in terms of how states materially will be affected. Um, that said, at least in the present day, certainly, um, I think that uh, that there is effectively a breakdown between, you know, just simply in terms of partisan affiliation, right, between states. And so, in a sense, I think to the extent that we could uh, uh, identify, you know, quote unquote state interests, um, I think there's a lot of overlap, if not complete overlap, between those interests and the kind of partisan interests and partisan affiliations uh, that we referred to. So, um, and in that sense, to the extent that the Senate um, might map on somewhat differently, right, in terms of uh, reflecting kind of the partisan composition of states as a whole, as opposed to individual districts, that's, that's, that's having more variation within states like you have in the House. Um, uh, that might be, you know, some difference from the House. But yeah, I'm not sure there is, in this case, identifiable state interests, at least that are clearly and obviously in play beyond the partisan compositions of states. Yeah, and one question is how important you think that ought to be within this kind of context of thinking about impeachment. So um, if we thought that states qua states um, uh, were, should be or were conceptualized as playing an important role in the impeachment process, one way of imagining that is uh, imagine instead of the Senate being the place where you have an impeachment trial, um, instead you had a body composed of state governors um, who served as the jury for or judges for an impeachment trial. And it's not all clear, I think, that the framers were thinking in those terms, that senators were representatives of the states in this context. I think instead there's the conception is much more um, along the lines of thinking um, that the Senate, as was traditionally true um, in the context of the British Parliament, um, as was also true in the context of um, the states, um, which already had impeachment mechanisms um, that worked on this kind of bicameral structure. The Senate was a smaller, more judicious, more mature um, body, people serving generally longer terms of office, um, often older um, uh, politicians, more experienced than the like, um, and the expectation then that they were particularly judicious um, and that was a valuable thing for the, for this purpose um, of sending an impeachment trial, rather than thinking they're the ambassadors of the states. And, and that's the constitutional salient feature of the Senate that's playing a role in this context. It's also worth noting that um, uh, despite the fact that senators um, uh, at one point, of course, were chosen by state legislatures rather than being elected, um, they were still deeply partisan in the, in the world in which they were chosen um, by um, state legislators, and that had real consequences for things like presidential impeachments, um, uh, for, um, uh, for example. And so in that sense, um, they're not so different. I think part of what we have, um, have in fact lost, though, in this context um, in a modern context compared to earlier contexts, it's not necessarily the senators are much more partisan than they used to be. They were very partisan in the 19th century um, compared to um, uh, now. Um, is that what, what is less salient than what once was the case was the six-year term. 
um, that it once was the case that senators were relatively insulated um, from immediate political pressures, and that clearly is not true to the same degree now. Senators feel themselves uh, being very vulnerable, constantly running for re-election. There's not a strong sense of, I don't have to worry about this for another four years, and so um, I can vote it relatively independently. Um, they're a lot like House members in that sense of constantly looking over their shoulder at the electorate, um, and that's a real change, I think. Um, compared to earlier points in American history uh, where there was less of that. I think the other thing, though, that's relevant um, uh, and has a, a hook um, to what you mentioned um, is this question that, that I mentioned early on of should senators recuse themselves because they have conflicts of interest and the like. Um, this has come up at various points um, in various Senate trials. It came up during the Johnson impeachment, uh, for example. So uh, uh, President Andrew Johnson's brother-in-law was a senator from Tennessee. Um, there was a suggestion that he ought to recuse himself um, from the impeachment trial of Andrew Johnson. Uh, 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 senator Benjamin Wade uh, was the president pro tem at a time in which um, there was no vice president of the United States, and as a consequence, he was next in line of secession um, if uh, President Johnson had been uh, convicted um, and removed. So there was a suggestion that Wade should recuse himself uh, from the Senate trial, and both of them refused to do so, and the, and the Senate as a whole refused to make them do so. And the argument that was offered was um, the people of my state deserve to be represented in this trial. Um, and as a consequence, I have a political obligation um, as a representative of, of my state um, to participate in this trial. Um, it would be inappropriate and, and a slight to the citizens of Tennessee um, if uh, Andrew Johnson's uh, uh, son-in-law uh, son uh, didn't participate. Um, and so uh, I think that's still a salient question, right? So if you think about uh, should um, uh, Marco Rubio or Elizabeth Warren or various other, or Lindsey Graham, various other senators who've said lots of public things about how they think about the impeachment process, should they recuse themselves from the process? I think that argument still holds to say the people of my state deserve to have a vote. Um, in this important process, and I'm the person who has the vote, and so as a consequence, I have to participate. Um, and, and in that sense, I think there is still a real salience um, to this, but it's a connection not to uh, state governments, per se, um, but to the people of the state, the sovereign states as such. Hi, my name is Masuma. Um, I'm an LLM student. Uh, so my question is with regard to the ongoing conflict with Iran. Like, um, my question is, do you think that the ongoing tension with Iran has somehow overshadowed the Trump impeachment, or is it going to delay or affect Trump impeachment in some sense? Can I just ask you, I just got a signal from the back. Can you move a little closer to the microphone and then yeah. say it one more time so the people at the back can hear? So my question is with regard to the ongoing conflict with Iran. Do you think that uh, the ongoing tension with Iran has somehow overshadowed uh, Trump impeachment? Or if it continues, is it going to affect Trump impeachment or delay at least to some extent or not? Yeah, well, initially, I mean, you know, time will tell. We'll see how things develop further with Iran. But initially, after the Soleimani strike, um, I, it did seem to me that this, you know, took attention off of impeachment for a few days. Um, and I think, and there was a point where, obviously, you know, it was very uncertain whether something uh, in the Middle East, you know, it was going to become very chaotic and violent very, very quickly, uh, and everyone was kind of holding their breath. Um, once we reached a point, and hopefully this isn't just a false sense of security, but once we reached a point where it appeared that maybe things were cooling a little bit, um, it did feel, I mean, this is just from kind of a, you know, putting on a pundit hat perspective, it felt like things were getting back to where they were a few weeks ago in terms of focus on impeachment. Um, 
if things were to heat up again, sure, you know, as to whether uh, uh, there would be a formal delay, you know, we'd see how that would play itself out. Um, I, it's unfortunate, but I don't know that, you know, any of the players could really separate themselves or would can really be expected to separate themselves from partisan calculations in terms of whether um, it's in their party's interest to say, oh, we, you know, we better hold off on this or whether it's in their party's interest to say, you know, let, let's just get through this really quickly because we have to rally around the country. So I think it's unclear. In the moment, though, if things seem, uh, if things remain, uh, uh, you know, with the sense whether it's a false sense of security or not, like we're in a bit of a cool down period, then I think it probably won't affect things beyond how it did initially. I think that's probably right that it, it probably, at least right now, doesn't look like it's gonna have a significant effect one way or another. But I think there are two things associated with, with that kind of conflict um, uh, that um, are potentially quite significant um, to an impeachment context more generally. So one, you can imagine there are real um, uh, national security sort of geostrategic concerns about impeaching your commander in chief um, in the middle of foreign policy crises more generally. Um, so uh, you can imagine it puts a bit of a damper, for example, on the possibility of using the impeachment power against the president in the midst of the Cold War, uh, where part of what you have to worry about if you're a member of Congress is if we're pursuing an impeachment, um, what's that going to do about Americans' posture relative to the Soviet Union? Um, and is it going to put us uh, in a position where we're going to be more vulnerable to some kind of Soviet aggressiveness, uh, for example, because we are in the midst of this internal crisis? And you can imagine congressmen thinking, um, we're going to have to suck it up and tolerate some presidential behavior that might in, in other contexts be um, impeachable, but we're not going to do that um, in the midst of the Cold War. And you can imagine some similar kind of calculation occurring in this context as well, where you might say, look, there are going to be real ramifications from a foreign policy perspective um, to move forward with this. And so as a consequence, we need to uh, back burner it. It doesn't look like we're in that situation, but you can imagine that kind of thing playing out. The other thing, though, I think is also uh, interesting about the, about the Iranian um, situation at first, which is traditionally, um, when there are big military moments, um, there's a rally around the flag effect from a public opinion perspective for presidents. Presidents tend to get a public opinion bump um, uh, from uh, attacks on the United States and other kinds of immediate military uh, conflicts. Uh, Trump didn't get one, um, right? So, but you can imagine a situation in which um, there's some kind of military strike, there's some kind of serious uh, foreign policy conflict, and suddenly the president's much more popular um, with the general public as a consequence of that. Um, it's relatively short live, these things don't last for a long time, um, but if you're in the midst of an impeachment trial, uh, when that moment happens, um, you can imagine a lot of senators saying, well, I'm not going to impeach this guy who now has uh, high public, even higher uh, public approval because of um, what just happened um, internationally. Um, part of what's interesting about uh, Trump is nothing affects him <laughs> so from a public perspective. Yeah. Nobody who likes him is going to dislike him, and no one who doesn't like him is going to come to rally around him, uh, no matter what happens, apparently. Um, and so as a consequence, he didn't get that kind of bump. And as a consequence, I don't think it would have had the consequences you might have expected it would have um, in the context of an impeachment and the politics surrounding an impeachment. Just a, a couple of elaborations on that real quickly. Uh, yeah, that, that calls to mind, I think uh, uh, the week after the strike or something, a poll came out, maybe it was USA Today, showing that, I think it was, I forget the exact number, but a majority of Americans thought that the Soleimani strike 
um, made the U.S. less safe, which was a really striking result. Now, maybe we could just attribute yeah. it to the fact that the numbers are always the same with Trump, right, no matter what happens. Um, so maybe it's just that, you know, just mirroring kind of the normal approval, disapproval ratings. Um, but it does call to mind whether, as Keith suggests, you know, whether the, the rally around the flag and rally around the president effect would be different. And in that respect, one other thing I'd say is, um, you know, I think Keith is exactly right descriptively that the rally around the president effect, that would be the classic one in an impeachment situation, would be for people to say, um, look, you know, we really have to kind of hold back because we would just be hurting ourselves as a country if we showed, uh, we'd be showing weakness if we went ahead and impeached the president. Of course, there's always the counter argument, right, that A, that's just a scare tactic, and B, that actually, um, it, you know, it, it ignores the fact that there might be things the commander in chief is doing that, that are undermining national security, right? And, and part of the heart of the Ukraine allegations or that the president was undermining national security for personal gain. So it is interesting to think if there isn't a rally around the president effect in this context, if maybe that kind of argument would have less purchase here. And maybe in fact the counter argument that actually this just shows living what a dangerous world we're living in and how important it is um, uh, to you know put a stop to things the president may be doing to enrich or improve himself that um, uh, harm national security. So it's possible this could sort of break from the classic model of the rally around the flag effect we'd expect. So in, since we started about five minutes late to allow the trickle in from classes then it right before the event, let's take these last two questions and then we'll wind up. Hi, my name is Nathan Morris. I'm a political science PhD student. So I've heard some people suggest that if the Senate were to use a secret ballot, then perhaps the president would be removed. It would be more likely, at least in that case, since senators wouldn't face backlash from their constituents. So I'm wondering, do you think that could actually happen? Is there any precedent for that? And what are the pros and cons of that? So I, I don't think it would happen um, under, and I guess so I'm thinking about just, just as a purely practical matter real quickly in terms of like what rules would apply, right? So um, it's possible that the normal, the normal rules in uh, Article 1, Section 6 for Senate journals, which essentially uh, it's a provision that uh, essentially makes it pretty easy uh, through, I think it's majority vote, um, uh, for members of the House to call for proceedings, uh, particular votes, et cetera, to be open, uh, that that might apply. Conversely, maybe special rules, uh, you know, the Senate might, uh, 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 you know, default to sort of special rules for the impeachment process um, uh, that might apply. But one way or another, I think it's very unlikely uh, that you'd have majority support for a secret ballot. Um, I, th I actually think it would be a terrible idea. Um, I certainly, I mean, it's really interesting because this does show, um, you know, some one benefit that's often touted of secrecy in government is that it does allow people to engage in sounder decision making because they're not worried to playing to the crowd. And obviously, that's what the secret ballot arguments are getting at. And that may even be true, right? That it may be that that the senators who would vote to impeach on a secret ballot really believe this would be in the best interest of the country, but there's a conflict between that and their partisan political interest. Um, that said, at the end of the day, any decision is so momentous. Um, I think just it, it, it would be more dangerous um, to the democratic system to allow that to proceed through secret ballot 
um, uh, whereby each senator has to openly stand by their decision and face the political consequences, I think it would be more damaging to sort of get rid of that than it would be to allow it to proceed, even if it would lead to what some you know, omniscient overseer might say is an objectively sounder result. Certainly inconsistent with the precedent about how uh, Senate trials have occurred in the past. It's inconsistent with current Senate rules about uh, that ought to govern um, a, a Senate trial. I think it also undermines one feature of what we think would be important in this context, uh, which is accountability um, uh, for uh, legislators. And um, that's maybe particularly salient in the context of presidential impeachment. Maybe we think that would matter less um, in the context of some district court judge, uh, for example, who might be impeached. But especially in the context of um, the possibility of removing a president, uh, both those who, who are um, acquitting, voting to acquit the president, but also those who are voting to convict president also have to go to their voters and justify their vote um, and explain the rationale for what they're what they're doing and so when we think about um, uh, this argument that uh, the people of my state deserve to be represented um, part of that as well is the people have their say um, at the end of this process and they don't like what their particular representatives um, have done in this process either in the house side or in the senate side um, there's a vehicle um, uh, for punishing them and putting somebody in place um, that you think might behave better in the, in the future on this front Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Jed Matthews. I, I teach here at the law school. Um, could you speak a bit about the role of the chief justice uh, presiding over the impeachment? Um, do you anticipate a lot of difficult decisions having to be made? And if so, uh, what? And if you were here, do you have any advice for him on how to uh, discharge that role uh, in a constructive way? Uh, so I, uh, so the chief justice role is, is very minor. Um, uh, all he can do is act as presiding officer and ultimately uh, any uh, decisions he makes can be overruled um, by a majority. Um, I would anticipate that he will try to minimize um, his role as much as possible. Um, uh, Chief Justice Chase uh, sitting in on the Johnson um, impeachment um, did not play a very significant role, though he did cast a few um, controversial votes and did make a few efforts that were relatively controversial. And part of what Chase was concerned with doing is trying to emphasize um, to the Senate that they shouldn't be hyperpartisan um, and try to take the process um, a little more um, seriously. Um, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist um, uh, some famously said um, after the impeachment his job was to do nothing and he did it very well. Um, and so uh, I expect Roberts to try to um, uh, do the same thing, that he would like to be a wallflower as much as possible. Yeah, if, if I, so if I'm Chief Justice Roberts, I, I would hope I would see some dark cosmic humor in the fact that, you know, I, the Chief Justice, Justice who so desperately wants to you know, convey to America that, that we are not as judges and as justices of the Supreme Court partisan actors. I mean, he's, you know, made some rare public speeches to this effect just recently that I find myself presiding over the impeachment trial. Um, and I have no doubt that he does want to be as much of a wallflower as possible. That said, you know, I'm not sure that he will be able to avoid tough decisions, because you're absolutely right, a majority can overrule him, doesn't mean that the initial decision won't, you know, if he is asked to rule on, you know, whether particular witnesses should be called, whether particular evidence should be deemed admissible, um, uh, you know, even things that might seem procedurally mundane, but that could have important substantive consequences. Um, 
he may be in a position where he does have to issue rulings, which then, you know, will put pressure on particularly sort of the wavering Republican senators, right? If he if he does issue some rulings um, that might be seen as undesirable uh, to the, the president and his defenders. Um, it's going to be hard if you're Mitt Romney, you're Susan Collins, you're Lisa Murkowski um, to feel comfortable with uh, voting to override, you know, the, the vote of uh, Republican appointee chief justice providing. So uh presiding so anyway i have no doubt he does want to be as much of a wallflower as possible um it'll be interesting to see if if that is if that does uh play out though i believe procedurally it's possible for him to completely duck all those issues i think i i believe he does not actually have to make an initial ruling um, on any of these motions it's possible for him to go directly um to ask the sense of the of the body um, and have and have the senators cast the vote uh, without the uh, chief justice uh, casting initial vote um, and then pitching it in, in terms of uh, the possibility of overruling um, his his vote. And I think that both Chase and Rehnquist um, made that move at various points during the, those trials. Although I'm not 100% confident about that. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to um, give each of our speakers a little token of appreciation from Penn State Law. Thank you. So, oh, thank you. And could everyone, I want to thank all of you for being here. And can you all please join me in thanking um, Professor Katrosser and Professor Rankin.